Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Thank you. Talk Recorded live. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another conversation with John McKnight and Peter Block. This is Maggie Rogers, and I'd like to thank you for joining us. John and Peter are the authors of The Abundant Community. Their work joins the movement to support neighborhoods in discovering their capacity to create a strong local economy, raise their children, sustain their health, and care for each other. Each guest is a social pioneer who is inventing an alternative future based on the gifts and capacities of citizens. We're joined today by Michael Peck and Kristen Barker. Michael is a co-founder of OneWorkerOneVote.org and since 1999 has served as North American delegate for Mondragon, the world's largest industrial worker cooperative. Kristen is the president and co-founder of the Cincinnati Union Co-op Initiative. Using a Mondragon model, she is helping Cincinnati be a leader in the worker-owned co-op music movement. And, and both are much more active than this little introduction, so you'll hear more from them. And before I turn things over, I'd like to invite you to join this conversation. And there are two ways you can do that. If you dialed in, press star eight on your phone to be put into a queue. If you're following along on the web, simply post your comments in the chat window. We're very interested in your thoughts and reflections. Leslie Stephen, our website manager, is supporting us in the chat room. So after they've talked for a while, we'll open up the call for your, your thoughts. And I'll turn it over to Peter now to begin today's conversation. Thank you, Maggie. Thank you, everybody, for showing up and uh, tuning in. Uh, Michael and uh, Kristen are creating uh, an alternative economy. And it's interesting to me, uh, with all the stuff going on in this campaign, that I don't hear much about co-ops or other forms of engagement and kind of economic forms. And so I hope at some point we can talk a little about that. I think it would be helpful, though, if one of you, uh, maybe Michael, could just give us a rough overview of what Mondragon is and the, and the basic idea behind it so we're kind of start from a common ground. Sure. Um, first of all, thank you, everybody, um, uh, John and Peter, Maggie, uh, for allowing us to be part of this conversation and also for the honor of always uh, uh, being with my incredible colleague and co-founder of everything, Kristen Barker. Um, Mondragon uh, has been around for 50 years. Uh, we were started by a, a rural priest in the Basque region of Spain uh, at a time when um, the Great Recession and the Great Depression sort of collided and converged in Spain to present, to create an opportunity of complete uh, famine, um, um, unemployment, uh, sickness, um, and, and destitution after the Spanish Civil War and World War II uh, for those parts of Spain that were on the losing side of both of those, both of those um, events. Um, and, and this priest focused on collaboration, on solidarity, um, and ended up starting, uh, helping to start uh, a little cooperative after, after teaching people through his school for about 15 years. Um, and that, that little cooperative made kerosene stoves. Um, and, and, and the cooperative movement grew um, in, this, in this region of the Basque country called Guipuzcoa um, to the point that today, 60 years later, um, Mondragon is about a 16 to $18 billion um, global enterprise um, with production facilities in over um, 65 different countries. Um, there's 71,000 worker owners. Uh, there's a huge uh, philosophy of solidarity, of one worker, one vote, of democratic participation and management of worker-owned enterprises. Uh, the school has become a university. Uh, they have their own bank. They have their own mutual. Um, they've been featured um, in Fortune as one of the top 10 places in the world to work. Uh, they've been awarded the Boldness in Business Award by the Financial Times. 
Um, and they've also had their ups and downs um, as the movement has progressed. And so Mondragon has served as, a, as an example for how a large um, democratically owned and managed worker industrial cooperative uh, can survive and thrive. And you, you've been here about, they're represented here for seven, seven, six or seven years. What, no, actually 15 of, years. <laughs> 16, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, a long time. What, what have you, what's you what, how has the translation gone? What, what's, what, how has it landed on this soil? So, so, in, so here, Mondragon has always been a beacon for academic interests, for social activists, uh, but it, it's always been sort of an unattainable beacon. People have always talked about, well, we'd love to have a Mondragon-type enterprise um, or cooperative in our own backyard. These calls uh, multiplied after the Great Recession. Uh, we were fielding 10 to 15 yeah. of them a week easily. Um, uh, Mondragon, as an entity, sells about $250 million in the United States, um, doesn't really have um, a factory, uh, although that, that is slowly changing here. Um, its brands are appreciated by the sectors that Mondragon is, is widely known for, which is uh, machine tools, automation, bicycles, uh, domestic white goods, uh, and other areas. But what, what was the real game changer was that in 2009, uh, the steelworkers under the leadership of President Leo Girard uh, and Mondragon International decided uh, to join forces um, and create a new economic model given what was happening to the U.S. in the Great Recession, what is still happening. Um, and we find the echoes of, of, of that, those days and, and the results in terms of stagnant wages um, and people not participating um, in the American dream as it was taught to us uh, in, in today's campaigns. And so uh, they announced um, a hybrid model, uh, the union co-op model. The template was announced in March of 2012. Um, I think I'll turn the story over to Kristen because what Kristen and her team have done in Cincinnati is really an example, probably our best example of how this thing has taken off. Yeah, so when they announced, oh, sorry, were you gonna ask him another question? No, I just thanked him. Oh, okay. So, um, so in October of 2009, when this historic partnership between the Steelworkers and Mondragon was announced, and it was in the New York Times, like Michael said, um, a person in Cincinnati named Phil Amadon saw it, and he brought a group of us together, four of us, to say, hey, this is huge. This could be transformative because look what they've done in Mondragon. What's so inspiring to us about the Mondragon story is that it was an area that was completely and utterly destroyed. It was rife with unemployment and poverty. And then within about 20 to 30 years, they had nearly full employment in that region. So that's absolutely what we want to see here in the United States. So we, in here in our region right here in particular in greater Cincinnati, so we studied the model for a year. Um, we studied what was happening in worker ownership. Uh, we got in contact with Michael. We were already in contact with the steel, uh, with the steel workers. And then, um, then we were the first ones to, so Michael talked about the framework kind of being finalized in March of 2012. In April of 2012, we launched the first um, Mondragon-style union co-op in the U.S., which is called Our Harvest. Our Harvest um, is a cooperative, and what we do is create access to local healthy food in a way that honors land and labor. So we farm, we aggregate, um, other local farm um, products, and then we distribute it in a whole variety of ways with a special focus on food access. So that was our first one, and then we launched a second one, Sustainergy, which is an energy retrofitting co-op. And then we um, helped launch a nonprofit that had some similar goals about, uh, about housing and doing housing in a way that people, doing affordable housing in a way that people can build financial equity as well as community in the process. That's called renting partnerships. And then we are currently launching a grocery store in a food desert that is both worker-owned and community-owned. But in the process of bringing these things together, and we have at this moment a waiting list of 13 different organizations that have approached us, 13 different groups of people who want to create, just in our area, more of these Mondragon-style um, union co-ops. 
So what we've also done in this process is kind of help build more of the infrastructure that's needed because when we got started with all of this, um, we were especially new at it. And as Peter kind of mentioned, how do we translate this model that's been so successful in Spain here uh, into the United States into a very different context? Because in the Basque region of Spain, it's an area that um, kind of is known for having more of a solidarity consciousness for generations and generations of cooperative activities. So when I talk about a solidarity consciousness, what I mean is that people are thinking about how can this whole community thrive versus here in the United States where we tend to think about the American dream and how can a family thrive. So it's just a bigger, wider view um, that's occurring typically in the Basque region um, as different from here typically. Um, and so what I think was brilliant about this partnership and adapting the model to the United States, because it requires such a level of solidarity and a widening of our thinking so that we're thinking community-wide and beyond, was to bring in the labor movement. Because in the best practices of the labor movement, that solidarity thinking absolutely abounds. And that solidarity thinking, thinking has been part and parcel to Mondragon's success. Before I turn it back over to Michael or to Peter or um, to John, John, thank you. <laughs> Sorry, I was hesitating for a second. But mm -hmm. I just want to say that one of part and parcels of Mondragon's success has been this integrated co-op of co-ops. So unlike in the United States, our worker ownership movement, which is really, I mean, our worker ownership in terms of cooperative movement has been really small. Um, but partly it's been because it's been like one-offs, like one cooperative and another one starting here. But unlike that, in Mondragon, there's such a deep level of connectivity between these co-ops that actually a certain percentage of their profits goes into this larger whole. And that money is distributed back out in the form of investing in education, in the form of investing in research, in creating rainy day funds, funds when there's, you know, part of the global economy, you're always going to have challenges. How wonderful to have a rainy day fund that you can tap into. How wonderful to have a new co-op launching fund. And so this, this integrated network of co-ops is one of the exciting things that is now being coming to life in a much bigger way in the United States because of this Mondragon Union co-op. Michael, I'll be interested where else in the, around the country are you spending your time and seeing something grow? So um, many, many places. Um, we're actively working in New York uh, to launch um, the education uh, part of this initiative. Um, remember the priest, Tosi Maria, uh, Arif Mendireta started out with the school. Um, so, and in the Mondragon experience, um, knowledge transfer and the acquiring of knowledge has always been really uh, integral to the success of the of the movement of the, of the where, where, group. Where in New York, Michael? So, so we're working we're working very closely. Our partners are CUNY Law School. Uh, CUNY Law School um, has won a national award for the past six years of being the number one. Uh, sir, public service-oriented um, law school in the country. And we're working with Professor Carmen Huertas Noble. She is the founding director of CUNY Law's uh, uh, Community Economic Development Clinic, CEDC. Um, she's also the person who um, did the legal structure for Colors Restaurant, which is the first uh, you know, worker-owned restaurant in New York City, uh, working with CUNY Law. We're, we're also working closely with the new school, um, and we're working closely with MIT, MIT CoLab. They have something called the Bronx Cooperative Development Initiative, and, and we're partnering with them. Um, as part of our CUNY outreach, we're working very closely with Medgar Evers College, Professor Roger Green. Uh, they have a whole uh, initiative developed, uh, uh, devoted to um, helping uh, fight back against gentrification of inner city hospitals, um, and we're working with them, with Medgar Evers, uh, to do to to, to help uh, uh, help SEIU 1199 achieve that goal with a, with a hospital in Brooklyn. Wow! So that's New York, New York. Um, in 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 Pittsburgh, uh, we for, for for and please, you know, I can go on for a long time on this question. So um, interrupt me well, if I'm you want me to stop. <laughs> well, the, the question behind the question is, you know, 
Uh, here's something that works. It's, a, it's an amazing movement that everybody's looking for an alternative economy. And uh, I don't know how much publicity, how much coverage so, this has. Yeah. Looks like a little so bit me, on that. Sure, sure, and Kristen can also talk because Kristen, um, I think, gets interviewed every single day as, as well. She should. Um, the the you know Harvard Business School just did a case study on us um, on one worker, one vote, and 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 Mondragon. This is the kind of publicity we really like because first of all, it's not really publicity; it's deep seated. Um, um, you know, coming up with the metrics um, and the truth about what's happening. Uh, Michael Bloomberg, when he was commenting uh, recently on the big debate about inequality uh, that we're seeing in the campaigns, he said, yes, everybody's learned how to um, talk about the problem, but where are the solutions? Well, we, we have deliberately uh, been very solution-oriented, and we've been very focused on working on those solutions. And this is not, you know, this is, this is when you're creating Mondragon style ownership, you are, you are co-creating this with the worker owners that are involved. <clears throat> you're not bringing in packaged, pre-packaged solutions uh, from a top-down right. perspective and dumping them on people's laps and saying, here we are, and, and, and you know, what's next? You, you, people, this is organically developed. Um, uh, it's the only way that it will stick and become meaningful, and this takes time. It's a slog. It requires a lot of sweat equity. It requires a lot of determination. It requires a lot of 85-hour weeks. Um, but we've been really gratified in this movement uh, because for the past two plus years, um, we're seeing echoes in Denver, in Grand Rapids, in Dayton, in Pittsburgh, in Buffalo, in New York City, um, and many other places. Um, people or stakeholders are coming together uh, who have decided that it's time to reown their economy. It's time to take their economic sovereignty back. And they look to us as a, as, as, as a way forward to do that. Not mm -hmm. just, you know, a pathway out of poverty, but a pathway to actual prosperity. Michael, uh, you just went over a series of cities, and uh, we have listeners uh, from across the country. I wonder if somebody who is listening wanted to touch down with whatever is happening in uh, in their city or their community. Is, uh, you went over a list. Is there a place where one could go to the Internet and find the list, find out where you might hook in yourself with a movement in your town? Well, um, oneworkeronevote.org um, uh, uh, has, has, has a, a web page, uh, a site. We also have a Facebook wall. Um, so does the Cincinnati uh, Union Cooperative Initiative. Um, so either one of those two sites um, will be, you know, full of information on what's happening. And also on oneworkeronevote.org, there is a clear place where you can get Michael's email and my email and then writing to either one of us, and we're happy to connect you with what's happening. And is there any uh, publication or um, anything else that, that is uh, a voice of the wider movement in the United States? So, so what we've done is we have a number of blog posts on our site. People are writing articles about us all the time. We try to post as many of those as we can um, as, as, as we can get a hold of, because um, sometimes you know there's so many diverse ways to publish these days that you know you don't always know what everybody's doing. But um, anytime someone uh, writes something about us, which is at least once a week, we 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 try to get it on the site. Um, we have a union co-op uh, template. Uh, we have source documents. Uh, we've put a lot of open source type documents on our site so that people can take the templates take the models and, and see how we've done what we've been able to do so far. Um, I might also point out that we're, we're self-funded. Uh, we it was a deliberate choice. Um, uh, we wanted to make sure that we had something to offer um, uh, before we uh, went out and asked foundations or, or other groups for, for funds. Um, we haven't done that yet in Cincinnati. They've been amazing. Uh, they've, in addition to their sweat equity, they've raised uh, lots of money uh, for projects based on merit. Kristen, you may want to talk about that. But let me, uh, before we talk about funding, now there's, you're, this is strictly a union cooperative, right? Well, our model, yes, we're focused on a union cooperative model. That's correct. Now, there's a lot of non-union cooperatives. What's the relationship like? Well, there's, yes, there's can I take this one? Please. 
Okay. So one of the things I was about to say before about the question about money was that so union co-ops is one form of a worker co-op. So in the United States, there's a group called the U.S. Federation of Worker Co-ops um, where that is probably the most comprehensive, that is the most comprehensive listing of the the, the amount of worker co-ops in the United States. And there is a group called the Democracy at Work Institute, which has all kinds of wonderful resources in terms of how to build bylaws and employee handbooks and all kinds of things. But what I was just going to say is what, what there are a lot of different co-op sectors and worker-owned co-ops in the U.S. are just super small. So I think that the last thing I saw from the U.S. Federation of Worker Co-ops, I think it said across the entire country, there was like 400, something like 400 worker-owned co-ops. And that, and, and that they thought that about 5,000 people were employed in those 400. And one of those, um, the largest worker-owned co-op is, is um, the Bronx, uh, the Co Bronx Cooperative Home Care Associates, and that has 2,300. So half of the worker-owned co-op employees are in one place, and that happens to be a union co-op, actually. They brought in the union um, 20 years into their history so that they would be more effective at lobbying for direct care workers and so that they could get some better training resources for their staff and so that they could they could stay true to who they were as they kept scaling up, that they would get some extra support and accountability measures in place so they could kind of stay true to their mission as they expanded and keep having places for people to, to step in. So there's the the co-op movement in the United States is really huge when you look at consumer co-ops and so forth. I think Michael knows these numbers off the top of his head, so I, I'll let him say that. But when you look at the worker-owned sector, it's really tiny at this time. Yeah, Chris is absolutely right. Um, another group that's really good is the Ohio Employee Ownership Center, OEOC, located at um, at Kent State University in, in, in Canton, I think their campus is. Um, they, they have huge experience um, forming cooperatives. Chris Cooper, uh, who's a principal with the OEOC, is also a co-founder like Kristen of One Worker, One Vote. Um, so, you know, what Kristen was saying is we have a huge cooperative community in the United States. 29,000 cooperatives, about 350 million American memberships. We only have 310 uh, million Americans, more or less. So there's a lot of du duplicate memberships. We have, you know, 7,000 credit unions. We have 966 rural electric cooperatives, um, and about three trillion dollars worth of assets. So it's an extremely well-funded community. And and some of those proc uh, procurement cooperatives are huge industries, right. like two billion dollar industries. $16 billion industries, but worker cooperatives, the Mondragon-type cooperative where the workers, you know, call the shots and own um, uh, an equal share of the enterprise, um, that's pretty small. So like Kristen said, it's between three to 400 worker co-ops, uh, worker-owned co-ops in the United States. Um, uh, maybe I've heard the numbers from 5,000 to 7,000 people altogether. Um, so really, you know, we have everywhere to go but up. And what we're trying to do in the one worker one vote CUCI world is we're trying to bring labor and alternative labor communities to the table because right. these these communities have been traditionally left out of the ownership equation um, um, and and you know it, it, they represent huge important and growing parts of the American economy they also represent something else they represent the solidarity ethos which everyone across the board realizes is what's missing um, uh, and so if we can combine equity with solidarity, we feel that these are the kinds of solutions that will help turn around this slide into, you know, structurally embedded inequality that really attacks on everybody. How about if we got narrow down now and say, what are some of the struggles and challenges in, in, in running a worker-owned co-op? Kristen, you want to start? Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, um, it takes a whole lot of work to do a startup. So if it's a startup worker-owned co-op, um, that's, I mean, it's, it takes a really long time to go through a feasibility study, a business plan to raise the capital necessary, um, to get all the processes in place. That's absolutely challenging. And our harvest, which is our first one, it started off before we had many processes in place. And by that, I mean, it was about a year and a half ago when we started um, with our harvest, like CUCI finally had its weekly kind of training program together. And now we, we've had for the last year and a half or a little more weekly trainings 
with all of our harvest folks, which is really, really critical because I think one thing that's necessary in a worker-owned co-op is you have to find a way for everyone, regardless of their education background, regardless of their language, regardless of whatever, um, their experiences, you have to figure out a way for all of them to participate meaningfully and to have to be able to understand finances. You have to make everything really accessible. Um, you So we have all kinds of participatory um, educational pieces that we've developed that we do week in and week out. And as a result, the morale at this time is really high. But in the first part of our harvest existence, that really wasn't true. And we suffered for not having all of that in place. What form did the suffering take? What were some of the symptoms that led you into the weekly meeting? Oh, so I'm trying, I'm trying so, to get I mean, a feel of the texture of a worker. Sure. So, so there were still weekly, there were weekly meetings, but people didn't really understand. So, here's some of the symptoms of what it looked like before we introduced this different way of doing our weekly meetings. Um, so, what it looked like is that certain people dominated the combinate because other people just didn't understand the finances that were being presented, right? So there was a domination and we weren't getting the wisdom of everyone in our group. Um, there was frustration um, because also because we didn't have a variety of other processes in place. We didn't have really clear, immediately really clear human resource um, policies in place. And so there began to be some frustration about people not pulling their weight. Um, so things like that, which were all kind of, after we had um, developed all of this stuff, like I would say like it's kind of a completely different place to be in. Whereas there was an over-reliance on a certain few individuals in the beginning part of our harvest history, it is now absolutely taking like you know it's like everyone is contributing and problem solving and so great at thinking through our next steps and now we're able to tap into the the and our harvest i should just say is a super diverse organization there's about 18 people involved and some of them haven't had more education than third and sixth grade they um immigrated to the united states spanish isn't even their first language they have us um a dialect from Guatemala. So we have bilingual meetings. We have developed participatory education. We have people who are part of our co-op that are, of course, women and men. We have people that are formerly incarcerated. We have people with master's degrees. So it's a really dynamic group, and everyone has a lot to offer. And now we're really tapping into that. And um, that has made a world of difference for us. So that now was a challenge have- until we got things in place. When you have, you must have management team. Uh, yes. Do you do you vote? Do you wait for consensus? What's the, what's it like when you're trying to decide something or? Well, so I think it just depends on what it is. So it's not as if we're voting on everything all the time. So um, so we have um, like a farm leader. We have two assistant farm managers, and they kind of co-lead. They're co-leaders. And so they'll make a variety of decisions related to what's happening on a day-to-day way. So maybe something's frustrating about that, and that'll come out in the weekly team meeting, and other workers can say something or other. Um, but then uh, say, Similar on the food hub side, there's you know there's clear people have really clear jobs, but mm. we have but there's meetings there's team meetings every week where some there's something that we have to problem solve like so some little quality issue some I mean all kinds of things where people are then contributing their ideas and how we can kind of shift things around and figure that out and and then there's big meetings where where we do have everyone's involved and then we also have a board so the board. Um, uh, the board, which is elected by worker owners, um, that also meets and also has a representative from someone from CUCI on it uh, in perpetuity as well. But um, that has certain, I mean, there's certain, like what I want to just say is that there's certain responsibilities that are designated to the board, certain one to CEO, certain, it's not as if there's not structure and things to follow. There's just lots of place for input and there's big retreats and there's big meetings that are called where everyone's input is connected, and there's a weekly outlet for input. So um, that can happen on any level. But they're still, like, in a daily day running to, you know, running things. You People know what they're doing or, you know, who they need to connect with to figure out if something will work. Yeah, and I'd just like to add to that that, you know, the Mondragon experience has showed that 
you know, while Mondragon itself has always benefited from a lot of earned media, um, it, it devotes a huge amount of resources to internal communications. When you have worker-owned enterprises, you can never assume that everybody gets everything they need to get and understand all the time. But the information flow has to be a constant pressure, um, a constant stream of back and forth uh, because uh, this whole thing hinges on on group understanding and solidarity of thinking and convergence of ideas. When you, uh, one thing I'm wondering about is when you think about uh, worker-owned co-op and in addition to cooperative movement, uh, uh, you're talking about how to create uh, these kinds of groups, but there are groups already in existence that have become or are worker-owned co-ops, and I'm wondering what's the spread on it. seems to me a lot of uh, effort has to go into creating one, but is there a way that it can spread uh, among other existing groups that are not necessarily worker-owned now? Is there a right. system right. called ESOP that allows right. that kind of yeah, we are thoroughly excited about convergence. Yeah, go ahead, Michael. Go ahead. No, no, you, you, Kristen, you, you go ahead. Well, so yeah, we see this as an enormous opportunity. So there have been lots of studies done, and they've identified that the baby boomer generation is choosing to retire. And for those who have created their own businesses and are at a point now where they're starting to decide what are they going to do next. Um, a real possibility is that they could choose to sell it to their workers. Um, and there's all kinds of processes. There's even tax benefits to doing that. Um, so when presented with the opportunity, that can be viable in, in many cases. So in Cincinnati right now, we are actively – we have, well, we're actually in the process of purchasing one company where we will be doing that, but we are also actively looking. We're especially looking in manufacturing because we think those have some of the best opportunities to um, pay family-sustaining wages. So we're mm -hmm. trying to see, like, if we can find um, families that have owned and for some reason their children don't want to continue the business and they're not, you know, that this might be a viable option. We want to present it to them um, as such. And there's all sorts of, Michael mentioned the Ohio Employee Ownership Center. That is what their job is. Like They are really amazing at helping that whole transformation process occur. And I do think in terms of scaling this movement, um, that is outstanding. If you can get a good business, because what we're talking about is building a cooperative culture, um, which is not an easy task, but also building a viable business. So if you've already got a viable business, um, shifting the culture, while not at all easy, uh, I think that does have incredible possibilities for scaling the movement. Right. And John and Peter and Maggie, what I'd like to add to what Kristen just said is that we're, we're, we're really not about one-offs, but we're everything about ecosystems. We, we, we always have to focus on the ecosystem not on one-offs. There's a lot of very successful um, uh, worker co-ops and cooperatives, um, but uh, but the Monogon experience has been that it's the it's the togetherness, the ecosystem, uh, the many working together, uh, helping each other out in terms of labor, in terms of capital, in terms of sharing knowledge, cross-training, which really makes uh, the cooperative uh, the cooperative movement grow, but also um, the solidarity and the give back to the community um, increase. And and so this is really what we're doing. And when we go into a new geography, when we're invited to come into a new geography to work with the stakeholders, the local leaders, who by the way always lead the projects, it's always us supporting them, not the other way around. Um, we always come into it with an ecosystem framework, uh, and then we think how can we connect what we're doing in this particular geography with everything we're doing in other geographies yes. so that as Kristen talks about, we, we reach that meta-architecture. Do, do you help us connect, like in Cincinnati, uh, what, how would you think or what would you do to help uh, Cincinnati become more connected in its own ecosystem? You know, because part of it is connecting the cooperative activity with, the, with other forums and other people trying to do good work and have the same goals. Do you do uh, studies? Do you, I mean, how do you think about, say, take Cincinnati as a region? Uh, or do you mostly focus on connecting the union-owned cooperatives around the country or starting new ones? Or am I being well, clear at all? 
No, no, that's very clear. Chris, did you want to start that and then I'll I'll take on take it on? Well, I think I'm a little bit um I guess I'm a tiny bit confused by the question. I mean, I can answer what I think you're asking. I mean, to me, it's it's sort of the kinds of things that are already happening here in Cincinnati. You know, it's like, um, so the Economics of Compassion Initiative, which I know you've helped start, Peter, and maybe the people on the phone don't know about it. But to me, I think of that as, well, here is an overarching initiative that is connecting particularly with faith-based people, but all kinds of people who are wanting to bring a compassionate economy into being. So you say compassionate, and I say an economy that works for all. And I think that they are the same thing. And so what I see is that, like, we're connected with that effort. Um, What's happening with, I mean, it's like connecting with efforts. I mean, it's, it's being a part of the larger networks that form. And so when we are doing that work right now to try to bring Gaston Presa back, um, which is for those on the phone, what that is, is a totally awesome. I'm actually, Michael, why don't you explain Gaston Presa? Yeah, that'd be great. And then we'll open up for questions. Yeah, I'd love to do that. But let let me just um, go to a point that I I think is really important. First of all, um, one of our co-founders, Libby Scholes, is with the California Council of Churches. Um, And we've always, um, and we've had a lot of people from the the Catholic um, social justice world uh, involved with us. We've always been blessed with um, faith-based leaders and movements uh, supporting what we do because basically ownership, worker ownership, um, um, equal share ownership um, is is an ennobling and um, an empowering and a freedom-inducing catalyst. And what it does is it allows uh, people to get back to the founding um, ethos roots of, of this country. Uh, you know, people who came here willingly came here for ownership. And what's happened is now, as everybody has accepted on, on no matter where you stand politically, the, the statistics are commonly accepted now uh, as conventional wisdom, the, the inequality the inequalities of opportunity, uh, mobility, and and wealth aggregation have become um, have turned this into two Americas. Have have almost become a corporatist type tax uh, that that the 99% are paying on behalf of the 1%. And this is distorting uh, what the country does economically, how the country lives, even to the point of actuarial tables where people that are in uh, in, in in less favored economies are dying. Sooner. So you can see it in terms of education, in terms of medicine, in terms of healthcare, um, and and then you can feel the anger coming back um, um, th- in this year's election cycle. And so we are trying to uh, change that and and solve that. But going back to the basic tools, which was ownership, which is what is ownership? Ownership is bootstrapping. Ownership is ownership is self reliance. Ownership is civic equity. Ownership is 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 working through building yourself up, being entrepreneurial, but not limiting those qualities to any person or class of people or, or geography. And, 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 and when you reach the worker-owner status, um, it, you face this wonderful uh, sort of en- enabling conundrum, which is you know, the worker part of that equation, the worker-owner equation, he or she wants to have the highest possible salary, but the owner part of that equation, that worker-owner equation, wants to have the most sustainable enterprise. And, and in choosing, and in daily choosing, which way you're going to go, the agony and the ecstasy creates really the freedom for the American worker to reach his or her you know, capacity um, and, and fulfillment. So, so we're trying to reinstill that again by going back to alternative um, and, and organized labor communities that have been left out traditionally of ownership circles. But what so I like to say, maybe I'll... Pause for a second. Okay, go ahead. Maggie, why don't you invite questions in, and then there's one on the in the chat I'd like to see, and then... I'm sorry to interrupt you, Kristen, but... Oh, yeah, I'd I was like just going to say what guest and Presa was, but, yeah, I won't for now. <laughs> let's, let's, wait on, let's wait on that. Okay. Oh, go ahead, Maggie. Sure. Um, would, would love to hear your thoughts and comments and questions. If you've dialed in, you can press star 8 on your phone and you'll be put into a queue. Um, or, as Peter mentioned, there's a, a chat uh, going on if you'd like to post a comment or a question in the chat. 
Uh, Peter, you mentioned a question, but there's also a comment. I know John isn't following along on the chat, uh, but there's one that he may want to hear, and I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and read it, uh, which is David saying, in my view, one of the unique opportunities offered by employee-owned co-ops is the potential to include worker members with disabilities in the work. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's, uh, uh, that would be... It would seem to me that the idea that you you mentioned earlier, diversity, uh, can apply not only to the the kinds of uh, categories that one thinks of that have to do with race, ethnicity, and income, but also with the the human physical condition, and that uh, there's a whole movement trying to get uh, opportunities for people who are labeled disabled into settings where they are producers in uh, local community life. And this seems to me to be a wonderful opportunity for that to happen. Oh, oh I totally agree with that. In Maryland um, and the D.C. metropolitan region, we have um, a, a, a disabled a taxi um, union co-op um, in its early uh, formative stage. Wow. Impressive. So here's a yeah, question. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Uh, Maggie, you interrupt if somebody has a question, okay? Yes, I will. So it says, as cooperative ventures gain a greater share of the of GDP, the market, uh, is there organized opposition developing? I'd like to hear a little bit about, you know, what you say makes so much yeah. sense. Yeah. But what, uh, <laughs> Let me talk about talk that. Talk about I, yeah. Right. I, I, I want to talk about that. So... We in, in America is really the land of inequality right now, um, and 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 even the inequality of ownership. So so when you look about when you look at ownership classes, it's always predicated on people with existing assets. But what if you are like the vast majority of us that come to the table with many wonderful qualities, but often no existing assets? ESOPs. Um, which employ stock ownership plans, um, they, they, uh, they've created a lot of uh, employee owners, and there's some very good examples. But the U.S. Department of Labor has also pointed out publicly that they, they believe one-third of all ESOP valuations are fraudulent. In other words, um, owners are selling companies to their workers where, uh, at, at market valuations where the workers can't sustain the debt, uh, in a down cycle in the economy for those um, those companies to be to be profitable, uh, the labor uh, the, the organized labor's experience with ESOPs has not been a, a net positive. Yes, there are a lot of examples of good ones, um, and this is not an attempt to broad brush anything. But there's been many um, examples of when you have multi-class stock. What happens is that workers usually get the bottom class, and if there's a down cycle, then the debt that was taken to pay off the owner, it becomes a burden that the company can't, can't sustain. And so we believe that, that there's got to be a better way to inculcate, to engender, uh, to create ownership uh, for, for everybody. And so our model uh, does it a whole lot differently, but one of the big policy uh, challenges we have is, is, is asking for a level playing field. Uh, why, why do cooperatives, worker cooperatives and union cooperatives, why don't they have the same tax advantages that an ESOP um, has? Why uh, can a cooperative not get an SBA loan? Why do cooperatives mm-hmm. not qualify for FEMA treatment? We have all of these uh, uh, disparities. Uh, and so, you know, the first thing is, you know, it's like that old song, I don't want much, I just want more. Uh, the first thing we need to do is have a level playing field. And then once we get to that position, then we can figure out, you know, what we really need to be as efficient as possible. So what, what's the argument of the SBA? I didn't know that, that they wouldn't. Uh, yeah. it's, not, it's not that they won't give a loan to a cooperative. It's just that one person has to sign. So one person has to have, I think, I forget what it is, but um, so whereas it would be nice if they would break the liability up into small pieces, say everyone signs for 5000 but one one person so has to, like they don't have anything in place that would allow for multiple signers, like multiple worker owners, multiple members of the co-op to sign. So it becomes prohibitive because usually one person doesn't have the kind of resources where they could sign for an SBA loan. So I guess they haven't bought solidarity, have they? Well, they, they, I mean, listen, they, they, they understand it, but 
bureaucracies have a hard time um, breaking up their rules. Sure. I don't know. Do we have other people with questions? I have a, one I'd like to ask, if not. Well, we, we, do have, we do have one in the chat, and that was um, asking Michael if he would repeat the meaning of ownership. Um, yes. Uh, ownership, I'd be happy to do that. Um, um, the Madrigan approach to ownership is one worker, one vote. Uh, everybody has an equal share ownership, and they also participate democratically in the running of their enterprise. So in the Madrigan model, 20% of the workers, if they feel so inspired, can remove, can vote to remove their CEO. Um, we believe uh, in promotion from within. Um, we believe that everyone's opinion um, has, equal, has equal weight, has an equal right to express itself. And the one worker, one vote principle uh, really puts that into, into motion. But we also believe in creating redundant ownership structures because, you know, in America, we have a tendency to personalize everything. Um, you can see this in today's campaign. It's always the savior on the horse that's going to come in and sweep away all the evil and bring in all the good. Um, that's really a recipe for, for something that's not democratic. And, and, and in Mondragon, uh, we have redundant structures built in. For example, in our cooperatives, usually the ones that are 50 people or bigger, we have something um, a, a social committee. The social committee um, is, is, is an organization that allows uh, workers who can't, uh, can't get their grievances aired through the normal cooperative process um, to go right to the head of their cooperative and, and lay those issues on the table. Uh, you, know, you can have all the good rules in the world, but there's still a difference in lifestyle between the person sitting in an office with a window and a person on the factory floor. And you, wanna, you, want, to, um, you want to structure the cooperative so that those differences are, are minimized. People confuse that kind of democratic structure with endless committee meetings and lack of competence. Cooperatives are very competitive profit-making enterprises when they're well-managed and well-directed. Mondragon has to compete against the Germans in engineering, against the Italians in design. If you don't get those equations right and have the right price point and a, and a good quality product, um, and people who know how to deliver, you will not have a profitable enterprise. It's very important in the Mondragon ownership model for um, cooperatives um, and, and, for, and for profits and nonprofits to be profitable. Because when you are profitable, whether you're a nonprofit or a for-profit, then you have the right as a worker owner to vote for how you are going to accord your profits and what directions are you going to invest your profits. And when you choose, when you vote to align your profits with your social values, then we believe you achieved a higher level of freedom in the marketplace. Can I ask one uh, other question? I noticed in something I think that you wrote, Michael, uh, we have these uh, big debates now about uh, the value or the disvalue of our international trade agreements. And I noticed that something on your site said uh, the, the whole idea of international trade is not the problem. It's the vehicles through which it takes place. And I'm wondering, do you have a, an idea that, I, that would say international trade is good, but if it were focused through cooperative organizations rather than the standard competitive ones, then it would take the sting out of the, the present system. Well, uh, first of all, thank you for asking me that wonderful question. Um, clearly, the metrics prove that global trade tax <coughs> have benefited a few at the expense of the many. And in our country, we have lost 60,000 factories in various ways since NAFTA was signed in 92. Um, when, we when we lost those factories, uh, we lost generations of DNA, of, of manufacturing DNA, um, and these were not replaced with similar type jobs. Um, we, we lost more than we can possibly recuperate, um, and, and I think our trade deficits um, explain that. But, we, but beyond the trade deficits, we lost um, a belief in the American dream. We lost 
uh, we lost cultural um, optimism, um, which is almost a, a cooler a cooler occurrence. And so what has to happen is that stakeholders have to be at least equal to shareholders. Um, right now we're in a country with the highest rate of absentee um, ownership since the Gilded Age, since the Great, since the Great Depression. And this has produced um, a, a whole population without a voice and a vote. The trade packs reflect a population without a voice and a vote. Um, and, 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 and so you have industries that are put at risk. You have people who believe in creative destruction, but they are not the ones who are being creatively destroyed. Uh, and so we have, to, we, have to, we have to keep it equal. If, if we're going to creatively destroy something, then we have to equally creatively build something. And our trade packs so far have proven unable to deliver that uh, for I, not just the manufacturing um, segments of our economy, but many, many other segments. Uh, typical high-touch high service jobs, you know, nurses, lawyers, doctors, they are beginning to unionize. Why? Because they realize that without solidarity, collective action, defending their livelihood, their jobs are also now at risk in the way the global economy has been structured. All right. Very interesting. Uh, would you repeal NAFTA, Michael? I would. I would. Uh, I would. Well, you know, hindsight makes a genius out of all of us. Um, but I think that NAFTA was sold on false pretenses. Um, uh, the numbers have not added up, and and the and the sectors that are destroyed, the manufacturing jobs that we've lost. You have to ask yourself: Was the NAFTA cure uh, worse? Than, than the NAFTA disease, um, and I think the I think that the election uh, anger that we feel uh, coming right. from vast um, swaths of, uh, of our uh, of our of our voting population on the left and on the right unite in a condemnation of how those trade packs were put together. Wow. Mm-hmm. Well, you've given us a lot to think about. I I. I... It still it makes so much sense to me. Uh, I just totally encourage you guys and help any way all of us can to move in this direction because I, I, I think of poor neighborhoods, you know, uh, or vulnerable neighborhoods. What strikes me most is that nobody living in that neighborhood owns anything. They have no ownership stake in their neighborhood, in their commerce, stuff like that. And to me, it you know, uh, it's just uh, there's something about that that got to be shifted. Otherwise, people won't, you know, right now we want to lift people out of these neighborhoods. We talk about transportation to get them to escape their neighborhood, where what's really needed is to economically revitalize these neighborhoods because they once were vital economic units. And there's all kinds of factors, but I think the issue of if I own something, I'm going to care for it in a different way is just very compelling. That, that's exactly right. I mean, Einstein was quoted as saying, "Is if you um, if you if you square the area of light, all you're doing is doubling the circumference of darkness." Which means that um, we have to go to where the problems are and heal these problems at its at their roots. Um, the, the cosmetic story of well, we're going to give the person a fishing line and we're going to teach him how to fish, him or her how to fish. That doesn't carry water because maybe that person doesn't have access to the pier or the beach or the sea, or maybe the sea is polluted, or maybe the fishing has been depopulated, or maybe there's no boats because people don't have the um, the supply chain to build boats anymore. I mean, the, it, the complication of depriving stakeholders from an equal seat at the table now is so pervasive that only a structural uh, fix can turn the economy around. Yeah, my, my thought on that one is why don't you have them sell fishing rods and fishing reels? <laughs> well, I would, I would say that there is a union co-op um, that's been set up by the machinists in Maine. Uh, for, they, call, they call them lobstermen, uh, but there's women on those boats too. So in one worker, one vote, we refer to them as lobster people. Um, they, they have a union co-op, and uh, it's going strong, and, and we hope that that's um, a big step forward that others will imitate in that sector. All right. So we're really nearing the end of our time. Uh, any Peter, final were- thoughts? There, well, there were a couple of questions in the in the chat that we didn't we didn't address. I wonder if we can do that quickly. Okay. And have Kristen respond this time. 
Okay. So it says, uh, in terms of operational funding, can you speak to the relationships between the Mondragon Worker Co-op and the affiliated credit unions? Oh, okay. So um, you mean the bank? The bank is called Labra Um The, the Mondragon Bank was started, um, as in everything in Mondragon, for organic reasons. It wasn't like someone had a top-down idea. Gee, we need to have a bank. It's because cooperatives were growing 60 years ago, and banks didn't know how to lend to cooperatives. They didn't know whether it was vegetable, mineral, or fowl. I mean, and so to, to, to understand how uh, cooperatives could, could grow and expand, Mondragon had to create a financial institution that understood how to lend to cooperatives. And Labral Cuchinau is one of Spain's most successful banks with the highest ratio of, of customer service. And we now have a relationship between National Cooperative Bank and Labral Cucha, which is a relationship that people on both sides of the equation take very, very seriously. You know, one of the interesting things to achieve in this country is to take our incredible credit unions um, and, and, and inspire them to lend to local uh, worker and, and other forms of cooperatives. That, that's something out there to be done. Um, it's a very small ratio right now, but the potential is huge. But in Cincinnati, um, there yeah. is a credit union that is lending to cooperatives and has been doing it in a really helpful way, and it's called True Partner Credit Union. Um, and they, what they do is, even though it's a high interest rate for a startup, they um, have co-signers from the community, and they do divide the liability so that co-signers are signing for $5,000 worth of operational funds. That's how our harvest got started. That's how Sustain Energy got started, because of those credit unions stepping up with community supporters. I would also say that Cincinnati has brought commercial bankers to the table. And that's, that's, a real, that, that's a real proof for us that our model is working. When, when you get commercial banks who you know, start from not knowing too much about our model to invest in, in what we're doing and to want a place at that photo op, and I've seen that with my own eyes in Cincinnati in the incredible ecosystem that Kristen and her team have put together, that, that's when you know that we're, we're reaching the center ring of the mainline discussion about Main Street in the U.S., and it's a very gratifying moment. Oh, we're glad that Kristen's in Cincinnati. She's a oh. city treasure. <laughs> yeah. Kristen, Kristen's nationwide now. <laughs> She's nationwide. Well, you, you can't have her. So I think we should uh, call it to a close. I just want to thank you both for what you're doing. Uh, I just uh, What you have is a very tried, practic practical answer to what everybody's talking about. And I so much like the fact that you are, have something to advocate rather than most of the conversations blaming the 1% or, you know, the, the big co corporations. And I just, everything we can do to make you the norm, and uh, I think it's just worth doing. So thank you very much. Thank you so thank much you. for inviting us. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Yes, and thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thank everybody else. Okay, Maggie. Sorry. Um, so yes, thank you. This it's been so invigorating to listen to you and to think about the possibility and the idea of ownership um, and what that means to people. Um, and and Michael, I wrote down the many working together, um, and that's really what we need. So thank you both for taking your time today to be with us, um, and thank you also to our listeners. We didn't get to all the questions, but we'll. Uh, see what we can get Michael and, and Kristen maybe to answer and, and post in our website. Uh, so if you'd like to know more about Michael's work, you can uh, check him out at www.mapagroup.net uh, to find out more about Kristen and CUCI. That would be www.cincinnatiunioncoop.org. And those are also on the um, invitation to attend today's call. So we, we hope you'll join us again next time. We'll be on June 7, and our guest will be Dr. Adam Clark, Pro Professor of Theology at Xavier University. So until then, please visit our website, www.abundantcommunity.com, and stay in touch with us. And thank you again, everybody, and this will bring our program to a close today. Thank you all. Thanks. Bye.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> 